Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with a special guest. Howard Gleckman is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization that focuses on economic and social policy research. And he's also an expert on how policy and tax issues affect older adults, family caregivers, and long-term care. He is the author of the book, Caring for Our Parents, which was published in 2009, a book inspired in part by his own experience caring for aging parents and in-laws. Howard is a veteran journalist with a background covering business and retirement. And one of the things that he currently does is write a very good weekly column for Forbes magazine, also published on his own blog, in which he covers programs and policies that affect older adults and families. As Howard's columns have long been one of my absolute favorite sources of information and insight regarding a variety of aging care issues, I'm delighted that he was able to join us today to talk about long-term care, long-term care insurance, and some of the other recent developments in Washington that affect older adults and family caregivers. Howard, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Leslie. So I wanted to talk about long-term care and long-term care insurance. That's something you write about often in your column. And I know it's an issue of interest to many people in the audience. But before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. And I think your background, you have an unusual background as a policy expert in this topic because you did start off as a journalist. You wrote for Business Week for a long time. So how did you come to focus on issues affecting older people and families and aging policy and long-term care? Well, it was actually because of a personal experience. Um, uh, back about 10 years ago, uh, first my father-in-law uh, became very ill, and my wife and I had to become caregivers for him. And then shortly after that, my own father became quite ill, and uh, we had to become uh, caregivers or help my mom become caregivers for him. And even though I had been a journalist for 30 years and was used to asking tough questions, uh, I found myself completely at sea with this whole issue of long-term care. We didn't know what to do or how to start or who to talk to. And um, the more we got into it, the more we realized that the system for supporting families uh, who were caring for uh, parents uh, was a mess. Uh, it not only wasn't helping us, it was in many ways impeding our ability uh, to care for Anne's dad and then for my own. Right. Uh, being a journalist at the time, I did what journalists do, which is I wrote about it um, and felt that uh, it's somewhere along the line that writing magazine articles was probably not enough to tell the story. So I decided that I wanted to do Caring for Our Parents uh, as a book and had the good fortune of getting a, a fellowship from the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, and spent a couple of years working on the book. And the great joy of that was I had the opportunity to spend time with families all around the country 
who are living this experience with care recipients and with their adult children and their spouses. And I could spend, in some cases, two years with, with those families uh, watching firsthand uh, what it was like to, to receive this care and what it was like to help provide care as, as adult children or as spouses. Um, so I took my experience and their experience and turned it into a book. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, I've heard very good things about your book. I apologize. I haven't yet had a chance to um, to read it. But can you tell us a few more specifics for your own family, your father, your father-in-law? When, when you ran into, quote unquote, long-term care issues, what were the specific issues that you were trying to, to sort out? Was it about where uh, your older relative should live or how you were going to get the help they needed? And, and maybe a little bit after that, it might even make sense for you to start off by just explaining sort of what long-term care is, because I think for you and I who work in this, uh, we're very familiar with the term, but, but it's not necessarily a term that the public thinks about in, in the same way. So yeah, I would love for, for you to address that. So it's an interesting thing, Leslie. I often talk to consumer groups, and, and when I do, I play word association games with them. So one of the things I'll do is I'll ask them, you know, when I say long-term care, what do you say? And, and their response almost always is nursing home. And as you know very well, the vast majority of people who receive long-term supports and services or long-term care get it at home. Uh, a very small number really get it in nursing homes or even in assisted living facilities. This is mostly a story about people who are receiving care uh, at home. Right. There are lots of definitions of what long-term care is, and, and these days people like to call it long-term supports and services, so they don't get confused with nursing homes. But there are lots of definitions of it. Mine is really just the support that people need to live the best quality of life they can. Uh, mostly, uh, that's not medical care. That's usually personal assistance, uh, help with what the experts like to call activities of daily living or incidental activities of daily living. And that's just things like, you know, uh, help at, at the most basic level, help cooking or cleaning or balancing a checkbook. And at a more serious level, it's help bathing and transferring from a bed to a chair or going to the bathroom uh, or even eating. Right. Uh, so it's help with these just daily activities. And most of the time, these activities are being provided or being people are being assisted in these activities uh, by their family members. Right. So um, so really, families are you know often the, the number one source, I would say, of long-term care services and supports for older, for older people. So the data I have seen show that about 85% of people who are receiving long-term care get it at home rather than in a, in a facility. And that of those people who get it at home, about 80% of them get support only from family members and friends. Uh, only about 20% uh, have paid assistance of, of any kind. So um, it's a, it is very much a story of families caring for families, which, after all, is the way it's been through human history. It's kind of what, we, what we've always done. Uh, the, the, the difference is that today, thanks to the wonders of medical technology and changes in public health, we live much longer than we ever did. And we have an old age, which can easily last for 20 years. Life expectancy at age 65 is almost 20 years now. Um, so we live a very long time. Much of that time is uh, a, a period of, of relative good health and activity. 
But some period of that time, uh, my colleagues at the Urban Institute have concluded that on average, a couple of years uh, for women, a little less for men, uh, there's a period of time where we need assistance. And nearly all of us do uh, need some assistance after age 65 before we die. So uh, that's, that's really what long-term care is. You asked about um, my own experience, and, and the, mm-hmm. the, the, the two stories were actually very different. In the case of my father-in-law, uh, my, my mother-in-law and father-in-law were living in Florida. Uh, my wife and I live in, in suburban Washington, D.C. And um, my father-in-law was quite ill uh, with cancer, although uh, no one in the family knew it. Um, he and his wife decided they were going to keep it a secret um, from their siblings and from their son and daughter. Mm, interesting. And, and my mother-in-law was doing all his care herself until one day she had a stroke and she died. Oh my God. Uh, we went to Florida to, to sort of respond to all this and realize how sick my father-in-law was. Uh, it was impossible for him to stay uh, in, in their home. Uh, so we brought him uh, uh, here and um, cared for him uh, until he died. In, uh, in your house? Not in our house. We did it in an in a, um, assisted living uh, facility. Um, which was just a, a, a few miles away. Um, it was an interesting story. We, we, um, he not only was in assisted living, but he also had a paid aide, a full-time live-in aide, um, who was wonderful. Um, uh, it was an interesting story, um, interesting cultural distinctions, because she was from uh, West Africa. Many of, the, many of the aides in the Washington area are from uh, West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting to, to, to watch as she uh, and my father-in-law kind of learned to communicate with one another. Her first language was French, of course, and uh, he spoke no French. Um, so it was, it was interesting to watch them. And they actually uh, became very good friends mm. and uh, worked out quite well. Um, he was quite ill for several months, and then he passed away. Um, my parents' situation was actually quite different. My parents were also living in Florida. Um, my dad uh, uh, had congestive heart failure. Um, and as you know, but most people probably don't, congestive heart failure or heart disease is the most common disease of, of old age. People think about dementia, but it's really heart disease. And um, so he had very common illness. Um, we enrolled him in hospice uh, when he was diagnosed with um, with uh, heart failure. It was it was a very serious case. Yeah, um, he must have been quite advanced because, um, um, yeah, most people with heart failure aren't aren't eligible for hospice until it's fairly advanced. But you were saying it was it was it was really quite as a as a as a doctor. I think you'd sort of be interested in this. He was he was um, not diagnosed until his heart was functioning at about 15% of capacity. Oh, that is, uh, that is too bad. Yeah. He somehow soldiered on and, and uh, until it got bad enough. And uh, he went through a period of time uh, not uncommon with, with heart failure patients, of course, where he was going back and forth to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, his, his heart failure was not being well controlled. Um, we enrolled him in hospice. We were told that he would probably not live more than about a month and he lived 18 months. Oh, uh, <laughs> that does happen because in a way hospice brings all these supportive services, um, that, Absolutely. that can, uh, be a huge benefit to people. 
Absolutely does. And um, so he he and my mom were 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 living in in their in their home, uh, in their in their condo. Um, and I became a long distance caregiver, which is kind of a a, a, a creature all its own. It's a it's right. a whole other set of stories. But a common challenge because we live in this big country where we're often far from uh, our parents or older relatives. We sure do. So what we did was uh, we hired uh, again a living aide, a woman from Jamaica, who cared for my dad. Um, I flew down to Washington every two or three weeks. Um, for long weekends. And it was a remarkable experience. I mean, both caring for my, my, my father-in-law and for my dad. And of course, for my dad, I did much less than, than we did for my father-in-law. Um, was, was, was really extraordinary because I, you know, I often tell people it was the hardest thing I ever did, um, but it was also the most rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell you that when it was over, after that 18 months, when my, when my dad finally passed away, I was exhausted. Mm. I've, I've never been so tired uh, in my life. And some of, some of that exhaustion came from dealing with that failed system. So it was dealing with all of his doctors and dealing with, um, you know, the pharmacy and all of the kind of day-to-day things that had to happen to make it's this work. a lot work. And, to coordinate and keep track of. It's incredible, and 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 we were fortunate because my you know my parents had the resources to have a living aid. My mom was relatively healthy; she could do some things herself. Um, my dad, until the last couple of months, was kind of able to kind of manage himself relatively well. You know, so so in some ways, our situation was was much easier than many people. Um, but even so, it was impossible. And hospice was invaluable um, once we once we made the decision to enroll them in hospice because, as you said, they provided all of these services. They provided true coordinated care, mm-hmm. which we didn't get through traditional Medicare. Um, where, you know, there was this piece and that piece, and, and putting it together was so difficult. Um, and the interesting thing, uh, an interesting sidelight to all of this was was our experience with hospice um, was so extraordinary. My wife, who had been a uh, lawyer. Um, uh, made a mid-career change, and she is now a hospice chaplain. Oh wow! Um, so wonderful. that experience that experience not only affected me in 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 really profound ways, it turned out it affected her too. So it was a it was a really powerful uh, story for us, and um, uh, it's it's really made me very interested in learning other people's stories and and. You know, it's one of those things, no one, no two people's story is exactly the same, but there's a lot that all of us caregivers have in common. Uh, we're members of, a, of a, um, a pretty big club and don't, don't really even know it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people often say that they feel quite isolated as they go through it, which is a shame because actually quite a lot of other people um, are going through it. And somehow it's, it's often hard for people to quite find the the connection and support as as they're going through it. Well, so so based on that experience, you wrote the book, and then I assume it was after that 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 you started working for the Urban Institute. But um, before we go into a little bit more about long term care and some of the the issues you've been writing about in your column, especially the question of insurance, which I have people ask me a lot about because often 
there's this question of uh, how to pay because people find it uh, very hard to provide all the help and support themselves in person. So before we come to that, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the Urban Institute and what kind of work you, you do for them? Sure. So the Urban Institute is a nonpartisan research uh, organization, uh, sometimes shorthandly called think tanks. Um, we have about 300 people and we do research in a wide range of domestic policy issues, everything from housing to criminal justice to healthcare. Um, I work in two areas. One is tax policy. Uh, and the other is uh, retirement issues, particularly long-term care. Um, so I, I kind of have one foot in two very different areas, although there's certain places where they intersect. Um, and we do uh, data analysis. We have micro-simulation modeling that we do. Um, we do uh, a qualitative analysis as well of public policy issues. Um, my particular focus in the long-term care area is really in two places. One of them is long-term care financing, the question of long-term care insurance and retirement savings and social security and those areas. How we pay for it as uh, individuals and as a society, I guess. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. And then the other thing I look at and I'm especially interested in is integrating long-term care with medical care. Mm. So people like my dad and like so many millions of other people have medical needs, but they also have needs for supports and services. And how do you put those two things together? How do you create incentives in the, if I can call it broadly, the healthcare system uh, that allows people to get both kinds of care in the most seamless way possible? It's a real challenge because, because there's the, 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 the payment system, Medicare and Medicaid and insurance, private insurance, don't really, aren't really organized in a way to do that. So I like to look at things that we can do to perhaps make all that work better together. Right. And I think, you know, you're, you're getting at, first of all, the source of a common uh, misconception. As people get older, their parents get older, they run into all these unpleasant surprises, including the fact that Medicare does not pay for those home supports and services because for a variety of reasons, historically, we have separated medical care, which was, you know, the things that doctors, um, especially doctors, <laughs> did, <laughs> um, to a lesser extent, nurses and other um uh, clinicians, we've separated that from what they, um, you know, the old, and I think a little bit impolite word was sort of custodial care, you know, the care of just taking care of people, like helping them get around and giving them their medications and, and, you know, helping them with their groceries, but all those things that are actually quite important, not to, not just to people so that they can live where, where they are or otherwise, or live somewhere else, but, you know, sort of live their life to the fullest, but actually are deeply, tied into the person's health. You know, if you can't walk around and get to the grocery store and take care of your medications, then you can't take care of your health conditions and they get worse and then you end up in the hospital. And um, so we have had this sort of a division between the two, which now that we have an older population where those two sides of what people need are so intertwined, um, I think we really suffer from that, uh, that division. No, it's, it's, it's really true. And, and, and part of it is, is because of this real gap in, in communication between the medical profession and the social service part of care. Um, the, the, people speak a different language. 
Part of it is the payment system. As you said, Medicare pays for health care. It does not pay for long-term supports and services, even though people think it does. Uh, Medicaid um, pays for um, uh, long-term care if you're poor enough and sick enough, um, but often for that population, doesn't pay for their health care. Medicare pays for that. So it's, it's very confusing. Um, you know, uh, often when I, when I ask my questions to consumer groups, one of the things I'll ask them is, do you have long-term care insurance? And half of the people in a, t- in a typical audience will raise their hand and say they do. And we know that's not right. We know that, that fewer than 10% of people have long-term care insurance. So I'll probe a little bit. And it turns out that what people actually have is Medigap insurance. They have Medicare supplement insurance, mm-hmm. and they think it's long-term care insurance. The reason they think it is, is because if you look at the marketing materials for Medicare supplemental insurance, it often will say, we pay for home care. Well, what it's talking about is post-acute care after you've been discharged from the hospital for a very limited amount of time. But that's in the fine print. That's not what people see. People see home care, and they think it means long-term care. It's the home health agency benefit sort of delivered by skilled providers. Exactly. That has to be uh, ordered by a physician. And yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I see a lot of uh, confusion about that also. So maybe while we're at it, what are other um, sort of common um, misconceptions or misunderstandings that you come across in your work talking to consumers and kind of studying the way the public understands this as we think about how we can, you know, help people find better solutions? What are other common misconceptions that come up a lot? So the, the, they really come in two kinds. One of them is about money, and the other one is about this, the, the delivery model and, and how they actually get their care. And, and you've hit on some of it. You know, it, it, a, a lot of it has to do with what care do I get if I have been in the hospital? Uh, there's been an issue that's come up in the last couple of years called observation status. Mm-hmm. Medicare has cracked down on uh, hospital admissions. Uh, it's made it much more difficult for uh, admitting physicians to actually have somebody admitted to the hospital. Uh, what Medicare wants more is that people are observed. They're kept kind of in a separate unit that's not quite the emergency department and isn't quite uh, a full admission, uh, just to be observed. So mm-hmm. typically, typical story is you have somebody who has chest pain. They go to the emergency department. The hospital says, um, uh, well, we're not going to admit you, but we're going to keep you overnight, uh, hook you up to some monitors and make sure that, you know, what you have is indigestion and not a heart attack. Right. They often need a couple follow-up blood tests every, like, couple hours for 12 or 16 hours or something like that. That's right. So, so, so Medicare's rule is that if you have been admitted to the hospital for three days, it will pay for a certain amount of post-acute care, um, rehab or, uh, or skilled nursing of some kind. Uh, but you have to be admitted to the hospital, and it has to be for three days. So now you have people who come to the hospital, they're in a hospital bed, they're being cared for by hospital nurses, they're being seen by hospitalists, they're getting hospital food, they're getting hospital medications, they've been there for three days. But they're not actually admitted, and then they can't get all that follow-up support that that, that maybe they could. Yeah. Doctor says, we we need you to go to a, we, we think the best place for you is to go to a skilled nursing facility for a couple of weeks to get your strength back or recover from your injury or whatever it is. 
and they suddenly realize that Medicare is not paying, uh, and they're going to get a big bill. Yeah. So that's uh, so that's one kind, and then and then um, what's the the other kind? And I want to especially think about the ones related to kind of more uh, chronic, you know, needs for support and help, because that's you know that's partly related to how we just manage an acute episode, a health crisis. One of the interesting issues when it comes to chronic care is uh, actually I'm going to tell you two. One of them is understanding the differences between kind of what the health system can do for you um, if you have acute medical episode and, and, and understanding what it is that the health system can do for you if you have chronic illness. And often people with chronic illness, you know, f- for them, it's not about the medical care they're getting. They may be, what they have may be relatively well controlled with medication. And as long as the medication is working, there's really not a whole lot more that they need. What they really do need are those supports and services. And it might be meals on wheels. It might be a ride to the doctor. Uh, it might be a friendly visit, uh, or it may be a personal aid to help them get going in the, in the morning or, or get to bed at night. And, and they don't really understand how all that works together um, and, and where to get it. Uh, maybe if they have a really good doc, uh, the doctor uh, can help them. Uh, kind of put together that system. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty unusual. Right. Mostly physicians say, you know, well, I don't do that. That's social support. You know, you're kind of on your own. Maybe there's a community-based organization they can go to. Uh, you know, uh, um, I'm on the board of a, of a local group here that has a, uh, what we call the senior helpline, and you can call and they can, uh, uh, they can provide you with some, some advice. But uh, mostly you're, you're kind of on your own. The other issue where people are really confused um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very special corner of the, of, of this world, but it's a very important one. It's end of life issues. Mm. And, and people are very confused about what palliative care is, what hospice is, uh, even physicians often oh, yeah. don't know the difference between hospice and palliative care. Yeah. They conflate them in a way they that do. is actually often, uh, not super helpful. Yeah. We, um, uh, I can't remember which episode it was, but uh, we did have Amy Berman of the Hartford Foundation yes. uh, talking about what palliative care is. And then we, we've done an episode on hospice also. Well, I, I would love to come back to the question of, you know, how to pay for getting that additional help that people, especially older adults. But, you know, there are some people who aren't uh, who might be younger and just have been disabled by an illness or a stroke or maybe have chronic disabilities. But but I'm um, thinking about it as, you know, a retirement issue, as you were saying. So for people who are getting older, there's this question of long-term care insurance and, and whether people think they need it. Um, and then if they do, how they might go about finding it. And it's something that you've written about a lot. And so I would love to for you to talk about that. You know, first of all, how many people think that they should be saving or otherwise uh, considering insurance or making some kind of arrangement to cover potential needs um, later in life? How likely is it that they will have those needs? And then when they say, you know, should I get long-term care insurance? Like, how are you answering that question right now? So, so that's a lot to unpack, but let me, let me take it a step at a time. So let me throw some numbers at you first, just to kind of give you a sense of what we're talking about. Uh, we did a big research project at the Urban Institute a couple of years ago, looking at all of these questions about likelihood of needing long-term care, how long you were likely to need it, how much it was going to cost. And this basically is what we found out, that um, 
for people 65 and older, you had about a 50-50 chance of needing a high enough level of long-term care that you would trigger the benefits of a long-term care insurance policy uh, or that you would trigger Medicaid benefits if you were poor enough to be eligible for it. And that is, remember before we were talking about activities of daily living, that generally means that you need help with at least two of those activities of daily living, like, like bathing or transferring from bed to a chair or going to the bathroom or eating. So if you need help with at least two of those, you would trigger a benefit. And we figured that about 50%, so, you, so if you're 65, you have a 50-50 chance of needing that level of care. Now, many more people uh, over, older than 65 will need more modest levels of care, um, you know, just a little bit of assistance. To trigger the benefit, don't you also have to have the need for a certain period of time? Because, you know, people sometimes, um, well, can you clarify? I feel like sometimes it's that you're, you need it also for, you've already had the need for X amount of time before the benefit kicks in. So there's a, the, there is a, many long-term care insurance policies have what they, they call, strangely enough, an elimination period. But what it really is, is a deductible period. And it's usually 90 days although it can be more or less depending on what you, what you buy. But a typical policy is 90 days. And what that means is that once you have been certified that you need this, this two-level of, of, of activities of daily living assistance, you would then call your long-term care insurance carrier and say, I think I'm eligible. They would send somebody out to determine whether or not you really were. And then you would have to wait 90 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, if you were still alive, um, then your insurance benefit would, would kick in. Okay. And you would get a certain amount of money a day for some period of years. That's usually how those things are designed. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. So sure. you were saying some people will have less needing. And we've been talking about activities of daily living, which sometimes I tell people they're kind of like the toddler skills. You know, the skills you learned uh, early in life, walking, getting dressed, feeding yourself, going to the bathroom, retaining continence. Um, and then that the instrumental activities of daily living are the sort of teenager skills that you learn to, you know, sort of live independently, transportation, finances, shopping, meal preparation. And, That's right. And so a lot of families certainly find themselves helping a parent who's struggling with those, um, you know, those teenager skills, the, the shopping, the, the transportation, uh, or if they've been losing their memory. Those are the skills that tend to go first. So, so in your, the analysis of 50% will need you know, would meet criteria, you know, based on needing help with two, uh, needing help with two activities of daily living. That's not counting the people who just need a lot of help with their daily life because of their illness or because they're becoming forgetful. Or is it? That's exactly right. So, so some older studies show that about 75%, 70 or 75% of people over 65 will have some need for assistance. And it may be, as you put it, those teenage skills, it may be the the, the basic, it's often transportation um, or things like balancing a checkbook, the, 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 those sorts of things. And, and you're, there's a very high likelihood that you need that. But that won't trigger the, the, the long-term care insurance policy. The, 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 the help with those, those very basic living skills is what will. So um, we estimate you've got a 50-50 chance. Um, we also estimate that that once you need it, you will need it for a, for a woman for an average of about three years, for a man for an average of about 18 months. Um, 
However, there is, you know, what the statisticians like to call the tail. You know, you, you think about it, the, the, the graph, and it's those, those people at the end of the tail who, who, who are not typical. And we estimate that about 14% of people will need that level of care for five years or more. Hmm. Uh, we also estimated that the average cost of care for somebody uh, over 65 will be about $130,000 over their lifetime. One hundred thirty thousand dollars is 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 more than what the typical sixty five year old has saved uh, in terms of financial resources. Um, so then the question is, where does the money come from to pay for um, this care? As we've discussed before, Medicare doesn't pay for it. Medicaid will pay for it, but only if you are impoverished. And by impoverished. I mean, really impoverished. It means that you can't have more than fifteen hundred dollars, one thousand five hundred dollars, in financial assets uh, before you're eligible. That varies a little bit from state to state, but that's sort of the average. Um, you may be able to keep your house if you have a spouse um, who's still living with you, um, but if you're a, a stereotypical eighty-five-year-old widow, um, you have to basically give up all of your resources, all of your assets. Uh, before right. eligible for Medicaid. So Medicaid is not the answer. Uh, you do have home equity. Maybe you can get some money out of that. Um, you have your Social Security benefits. Maybe you have a pension or you have a 401k, a little bit of money from that. But this is vastly more than most Americans are going to be able to afford. To give you a sense of it, um, a nursing home these days, on average, costs about $300 a day. Uh, uh, an assisted living facility uh, on average, costs about forty thousand dollars a year, and of course, this also varies a lot depending on uh, where you live. And if you hire home health aid from an agency, it costs twenty or twenty-two dollars an hour. Right. Uh, so this is enormously expensive and far beyond the resources of most people. So what do you do? Well, thirty years ago, almost forty years ago now, somebody came up with the idea of long-term care insurance. And the idea was that you would buy this insurance probably in your 40s or 50s. You would pay premiums for 30 or 40 years, and then uh, you would get a benefit. Um, sounded like a really good idea. Um, the problem was that um, the people who bought the insurance were the people who were most likely to need it. Mm. And the insurance companies grossly underestimated how much they were going to have to pay out in premiums. Um, so what happened was, uh, first of all, the premiums started to go up, um, and they rapidly became unaffordable for many people. The insurance companies started dropping out of the market. Uh, 10 years ago, there were over a hundred companies that were selling private long-term care insurance. Now there are about 12. Um, and this has gone from what they hoped would be a mass market product to a real niche product. And now, um, the latest estimates for last year were that less than 100,000 uh, people in the entire United States bought uh, traditional long-term care insurance policies. Probably another 100,000 bought policies that, are, that combine long-term care insurance with annuities. Um, but it's still a very small fraction of people who buy this insurance. Um, so you ask the question, should people buy it? Well, people ask me, and I imagine they ask you too. 
all the time. And I, I'm going to give you a very unsatisfactory right. answer, which is maybe. Right. Or you know, it depends. That's what I thought you were going to it say. It depends. <laughs> exactly. If, if, if you know, you, you were to ask me, you know, should I buy health insurance? I would say absolutely. If you were to ask me, should I buy auto insurance? I'd say you actually don't have any choice. If you can drive a car, yes, you do. Um, and, you know, should I buy uh, property insurance for my house? Say, same thing. You pretty much have to if you have a mortgage loan. But long-term care insurance is a very complicated story. Um, and these are some of the things you need to think about before you decide whether to buy. First thing is you, you, you've got to make a decision about whether you can afford the premiums. To give you, again, a sense, the, the typical premium for a typical policy, the typical policy, an average policy, pays off about $150 a day for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, that policy will cost you, if you buy it in your late 50s, which is when people buy it, about $3,000 a year. Uh, and you can be pretty certain that the premiums are going to go up. So you buy this policy in your late 50s, you're probably going to not need the care until you're in your 80s. So can you afford $3,000 a year for the next 25 years um, with a pretty good sense that that $3,000 is going to increase? fairly substantially over that time. So the first question you need to ask yourself is, can I actually afford to pay these premiums? Then the next question you have to ask yourself is, how much money do I have? What are, what's the total value of my, of my assets? And the general rule of thumb is, if you have less than, say, $100,000 in financial assets, you probably don't want to buy this insurance. What you probably want to do is just spend down what you have, and if you run out of money, then rely on Medicaid. Uh, at the other end of the extreme, if you have a couple of million dollars of assets, you can say to yourself, I can probably self-insure this. There's some chance that maybe I'll have dementia and I'll live for 10 years and I'll, and I'll live my $2 million, but um, probably won't. So at that end, um, you might say, I'm going to self-insure and I don't need the insurance. If you're in the middle, and that's a big middle between right. 100000 and $2 million, the question is, what do you do? So then you have to ask yourself a series of other questions. What do you want to buy this insurance for? Is it, is it to preserve assets for your children? Um, or is it to actually pay for the care? Many people who buy this insurance buy it to preserve assets. Mm. So then what I ask people to ask themselves is, think about your kids. You know, uh, are your children, is your daughter a physician and your son a lawyer? Well, then you probably don't need to preserve assets for them. On the other hand, um, is, is your daughter a musician and is, does your son have an intellectual disability? Well, then maybe it's important to preserve assets for them. Um, then you need to think about your risk. Um, do you have uh, risk factors uh, in your family medical history that leads you to believe that um, you, you may need a launch spell of care? You know, if you come from a family where people die of heart attacks at 40, well, maybe that's not so important. Uh, if, on the other hand, you have dementia in your family, then maybe it matters some, although there's, as you well know, an argument about how much of dementia is hereditary. Um, but, you know, so you think about those things. And then ultimately, you think about your tolerance for risk. Um, how much of a chance are you willing to take um, that you're going to be in that tail, that you're going to need more than uh, an amount of care that um, you, you, you can afford if you're average? So it's a lot of questions, a lot of answers. The one other issue um, that's important to know is because insurance companies have been burned so badly 
by these higher than expected uh, benefits. They are now underwriting for pre-existing medical conditions much more strictly than they used to. Mm. Um, that means that if you wait until you're in your 60s, uh, not only will you pay higher premiums, but there is a pretty good chance that you'll be underwritten out, that the insurance carrier will look at this and say, you know, you've got, say, significant arthritis, um, and we're, not gonna, we're just not going to... Uh, cover you at all. Or if we do cover you, we're going to charge you an extra premium for doing it. Right. I mean, honestly, these days I have a little bit of difficulty imagining who it it makes sense for because, you know, for instance, you were saying that the premiums are $3,000 a year and that they'll probably go up over time. And so if you uh, if you buy this when you're you're 60 and you pay $3,000 a year for for 20 years, you've paid $60,000. I mean, if you figure that it might well go up during that time, you could end up, you know, paying eighty thousand dollars for um, for a benefit that then at one hundred fifty dollars a day, that's you know, that's only like seven hours of in-home care with the aid at twenty dollars an hour, and not really covering the nursing home at three hundred dollars a day. And so, so wouldn't for a lot of people, wouldn't they be better off saving that money in some format where it's, uh, you know, might grow in a slow, safe way? So this is another question that I'm asked all the time. Uh, it's great that you ask it. So the answer is, you know, yes, you, you could save uh, for uh, long-term care need in old age, but um, you need to start when you're very young. You need to do it consistently through your working life. You need to hope that you don't have um, uh, uh, an unexpected event that occurs sometime, say, in your 50s, that uh, ruins your careful saving, say, losing a job or getting a divorce or having a medical problem. Um, so th the answer in theory is yes, you can. But um, the reality is that most Americans don't save. And they particularly don't save when they think they're saving for frail old age. Mm. It's actually funny. When I talk to financial planners, uh, they often tell me the same story. Story goes like this. Couple comes in to see me for the first time. They're in their 50s. Um, financial planner says to potential clients, um, so what are your goals? You do what a good physician would do. What are your goals? What, what, you know, what, what do you expect to get out of, out of our relationship? And um, the, they, they will inevitably say, well, we're 55, um, we want to save uh, and, and you know, invest in the, in the market uh, so that we can retire at 62. And the financial planner would say, so how much money have you put aside so far? And they'll say $100,000. And the planner will say to himself, you've got no chance. <laughs> mm -hmm. there's, there's no possible way we're going to do this. But he'll say to the clients, let's see what we can do to, to, to try to make this work and, and how we can put together a savings plan, investment plan for you. And people will be all ears. They'll be very interested in, in, in talking about this. And then a good financial planner will say to a client, now let's think about what your retirement's going to be. What are your goals for retirement? And they'll say, I want to you know, play golf, or I want to move to Florida, or I want to go on a cruise. And the planner will say, but what about saving for uh, frail old age, the time when you're going to need long-term care? And inevitably, people will start squirming in their seats and looking at their watches and saying, well, we got to go. We'll talk to you about that another time. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is just not something that Americans want to think about. Right. Remember we talked before, you got a 50-50 chance that you're going to have a severe level of long-term care need. Every other person listening to this podcast is going to need this assistance, yet we're all in denial. Mm-hmm. And you said also that, you know, 70 to 75 percent will need at least some help, you know, maybe not the sort of like severe threshold of of help with two, uh, two ADLs. So since it sounds like we, you know, the market for long-term care insurance is not so good and we can't count on people saving for themselves, uh, I know you've, uh, you've worked on and also written about some of the policy approaches. So can you tell us briefly about some of the ones that are, are being worked on? Would it be kind of a public program where everybody pays taxes to get some coverage, or or sometimes they also do um, things to incentives to help people save, right? Special special plans where you can put money in and you know to encourage people. We have those for retirement. What's uh what's being worked on? So let me let me just before I answer that, let me just mention one other very important fact when we think about policy solutions to to this challenge. And I don't want to call it a problem because living to a ripe old age, I don't think is a problem. I think mm-hmm. it's a challenge, but it's not a problem. Uh, and, and that is the demographics about baby boomers and their children. And what's happened is because we boomers, and I'm a boomer, have not had very many children. The, the number of people who are available to care for aging boomers is rapidly shrinking. Mm-hmm. So right now, or let's actually go back a few years. 10 years ago, there were about six people of caregiving age, say between ages 40 and 60, who were available to care for every one person who was over 80. Uh, in, in 20 years, that's going to be down to three. Mm-hmm. So not only do we have the financial problems that we've been talking about, we also have the other big resource problem, which is there are not enough family members to care for people. Right. So who is going to replace those family members? And the last point, actually, is the one you made before, which is that we're not living in the same places anymore. So, you know, so mom lives in San Francisco and, and her son lives in Chicago and her daughter lives in Boston. So, you know, even if, you know, theoretically she's got two children who can care for her, she actually doesn't have any because they're in in different cities. So you put all that together and you say, so we don't have the financial resources. We don't have the personal resources because we don't have enough kids. Um, So what do we do? What, What can we do to replace that family caregiving that used to be and still will on some level be the bedrock of this? So replace or at least supplement it. The family caregiving, that's the hardest thing you ever did, but also very rewarding. Absolutely. That's right. So there are a couple of solutions to this. One of them is, um, one sort of bucket of solutions is what I like to think of as community-based solutions. Can you put together programs that allow your neighbors or members of your faith community or other social connections you have to not replace, but at least help fill in the gaps that may have been covered in the past by your children. Mm-hmm. So there are senior villages, which are a wonderful model, where people at a grassroots level put together community-based organizations, little, little nonprofits, where they agree to help one another, provide volunteer services, give each other rides or friendly visits or that kind of thing. Um, 
and then and then pay it forward um, when um, they need help. Right. Um, so the, the, there are those kinds of models. I did a, I did a paper uh, um, last year for the Catholic Health Association looking at how, how you could do the same thing for faith communities. Oh, great. You know, can, can members of churches or synagogues or mosques kind of come together and help one another uh, get through difficult times after an acute medical episode or maybe on a permanent basis for somebody who's got chronic conditions? And there's, there's a lot of fascinating things. We can maybe talk about that another time, but there's, there's fascinating yeah, stories. To- about, about how you can do that. So that's kind of one bucket. The other bucket is the paid assistance. And, and, and if you can't rely on private insurance to, to pay for this catastrophic need, what could you do? So there are two possibilities. One of them is um, provide a public benefit uh, that would supplement long-term care insurance. I worked for a, for a project a couple of years ago called the Long-Term Care Financing Collaborative. And what we came up with was this idea, um, th- that there would be a public program that would provide catastrophic long-term care insurance for people who needed the care for more than, say, two or three years. Mm-hmm. So that you would be responsible for providing that care or paying for that care for the first couple of years, and you would use savings or home equity or maybe a skinny down private long-term care insurance policy to pay for the early stages of need. But then if you were one of those people who needed care for a really long time, that you would then rely on a public benefit. Right. And when we did this, we, we, we concluded that you could give people a benefit of $100 a day for life starting after year three, um, and, the, and the cost would be a payroll tax surcharge on your, like a Medicare payroll tax surcharge of eight-tenths of 1%, less than 1%. That would be for a median income family, a family making $60,000, about $500 a year. Um, so you compare $500 a year for that public benefit to $3,000 a year for a private insurance benefit, pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. Um, and that, yeah. did you run it past your consumer groups? What did they think? So we did. So our, our long-term care financing collaborative had in it representatives of consumers and, and provider groups and people from the insurance industry and people from Medicaid. And we were able to reach an agreement that we thought that this was a, um, a workable solution. Now, you know, are we going to get politicians in the current environment to go along with something like that? Not anytime soon. But I think it's a model that's actually got some real potential. Since we came out with our report, there are a couple of other groups um, that have also come up with similar recommendations. So I think that, that in the non-political world, I think there are a lot of experts who have looked at this who have concluded that this is a this is a potential solution. And interestingly enough, People from the long-term care insurance industry who had been very reluctant to sign on to any kind of public program uh, now think this is actually a very interesting idea. So that's kind of, that's kind of one set of ideas. Yeah. The other one is um, uh, about a third of older adults uh, have enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans, and that's Medicare Managed Care. Mm-hmm. Um Medicare Advantage has some real benefits. Um, it provides some uh, supplemental medical services like uh, like uh, 
uh, eye exams and dental care. Uh, it provides uh, 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 drugs. Um, and it provides the opportunity to truly coordinate uh, all of your medical care. But um, Medicare Advantage plans are prohibited by law uh, from offering non-medical services like personal health aids or transportation or food or anything like that. You know, not only are they discouraged from doing it, it's actually against the law for them to do it. So one of the things that we have suggested is that Medicare Advantage plans be allowed to offer uh, personal assistance services as part of their benefit package. Uh, the goal would be to provide not only fully integrated medical care, but also to provide fully integrated medical and supports and services. Um, well, it sounds like a great idea. And is that is that making headway or is there a possibility that those rules could be changed? So the United States Senate a couple of months ago passed a bill that would make it possible to do it. It was a bipartisan bill supported by Democrats and Republicans. Pretty unusual these days. Yeah. Fantastic. And and the House uh, has not acted on it yet, but may actually act on it within the next couple of days. There's some real interest there. Okay. So this might actually happen. Now, Medicare Managed Care, Medicare Advantage is a controversial product, probably less controversial in California, where there's a lot of managed care than it is in other states. But it's still a very controversial issue. And the concern that some consumer groups have is that because... Uh, these insurance companies hold all of the risk. They will be unwilling to spend what they need to uh, to provide people with the care they need. Right. Yeah. The that, old HMO the old problem HMO. that uh, that had uh, that had come up. So that's great. So there are some you know uh, policy solutions that have been developed. And you were saying the politicians haven't uh, been very interested in some of them, although they're they're considering these changes to Medicare Advantage. So. What will it take for them to pay more attention to this? And you know, this is something that people sometimes ask me is there are so many uh, older adults. There are so many families who are finding themselves in the position that you were in um, several years ago, struggling to uh, help an older relative to, to find some relief, depending on, you know, how they're counted and whose report you read. There's, you know, 30 to 50 million Americans who are helping an older person. Why isn't there more sort of political pressure to, to do something? So this is an interesting issue. Uh, caregivers for younger people with disabilities, and I'm thinking now particularly about people with intellectual developmental disabilities, are fabulous advocates for their children. Uh, many younger people with physical disabilities are great aggressive advocates for themselves. Older adults are not very good advocates, and you think about it, it's pretty obvious why. I mean, when you're at a point where you need long-term supports and services, you're pretty frail. Um, and it's difficult enough to get out of the House, much less, you know, go to your state legislature or the Congress to testify. But their adult children caregivers are also terrible advocates. And I've thought a lot about why that is. And the only thing I come up with is that that some of this is based on my own experience, that you are so overwhelmed right. with the care needs of your loved one that you're you're just you don't have the time, you don't have the energy to tell this story over and over again to some politicians. The other reason is that 
when you're caring for a say a, a, a child with, with, with disabilities, um, that's a long range, um, in many cases, a, 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 a long range uh, exercise. You'd be doing that for decades. And because the public school system provides you with uh, support during the day until your child is 18, you actually have time uh, to, to advocate. So this is an issue which is top of mind, and you have time, and the the outcome is pretty good. I mean, if you if you you know you, you advocate well, and your your child gets pretty good care, your child could live a good long life. Right. Um, if you're caregiver for a frail parent, uh, it's a very different story. There is no um, public school to take care of them during the day, so that you're always worried if you're not physically there. Well, there's Always social daycare and adult day health care, but you yeah. have to find it. You have to be on Medicaid or pay for it out of pocket. And yeah, that's it's right. not that's right. That's it's not nearly as available and obvious and easy as school. That's exactly right. Um, and then, you know, then there's the end. And the end is they're going to die. And after that, what I've discovered when I talked to family care- caregivers, and this, this was this was true with the, the many of the families that I talked to for my book, was they don't want to think about it anymore. That that this this was such a difficult time, and such an exhausting time, that the idea of traipsing around you know some state legislature or Congress and retelling the story over and over again was just not something that many people want to do. Mm-hmm. Some do. I mean, there's people like me. You know, right. I, I, I talk about it endlessly. And thank goodness. But, but most people don't. They want to move on with their lives. And, and, and in some cases, remember, you know, you have just finished caring for your dad and now you're worried about your mom. Right. So, so or your mother-in-law or your mother-in-law. That's right. So there's that whole set of issues. So for all of those reasons, and maybe for others, I haven't figured out, um, uh, caregivers for frail elders are not very good advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's made it very difficult to get Congress to focus. The, the, the other reason that's been very difficult for Congress to focus on is it's a difficult problem. It's a, it's, it's a difficult, seemingly intractable problem. It's, it's, certainly, uh, it's certainly complicated. Now, it's interesting, you know, being in geriatrics, I've seen over the last 10, 15 years, uh, you know, my patients changing and older people changing a little bit in their um, attitude towards their health care. For, for instance, and I've heard it hypothesized that, you know, the boomers might change things because, first of all, there'll be a generation that where, you know, many of them will have uh, been involved in caring for their older parents or at least seen how, because um, they'll be the first generation to have um, where, you know, many or most of them may have witnessed how their parents spent their last years of their lives in their late 80s or early 90s. And uh, th- that they might be more interested in advocating um, for things to be different for themselves. And also, I feel like there's, there's increased interest. Um, I certainly hear from a lot of people who want to kind of plan ahead for their own aging. So do you, um, do you see that, too? And do you think that might tip things a little differently? It might. The other thing that, that, that I think has the potential for tipping things, and I'll, and I'll tell you, I've seen this firsthand now um, frequently, and that is that members of Congress are increasingly becoming caregivers. Oh, and, and they now they now have had personal experiences um, that ha- have really changed their outlook on this issue. The, the 
never underestimate the value of legislation by anecdote. Uh, it happens all the time in Congress. I'll tell you a, just a quick little story about this. Um, uh, some years ago, I visited with a United States senator um, to talk about long-term care issues. And it was very clear that the senator was not interested in anything I had to say. Um, I still don't understand how I even got in to see him, given his lack of interest, but just simply was not interested. A couple of years later, I was at a party and saw the senator, who didn't remember my name, but remembered what I did, and said, in effect, you're the long-term care guy, right? And I said, yeah. And um, suddenly was talking to me about all these caregiving issues. And I walked out of there and I said, what is this about? We made a couple of calls, and lo and behold, the senator had become a caregiver. Right. It became real uh, for him and important had, for had, him. Had a very uh, uh, difficult, time-consuming, challenging job, was caring for, uh, uh, in this case, a father who was a thousand miles away. Um, and it was very stressful. And this became, as you said, this became real. So I think as more members of Congress um, have this personal experience, I think there's a better chance that we're going to be able to address these, these issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I was uh, wondering, um, as we wrap up the episode, if you wouldn't mind telling us, uh, you're a boomer yourself. So how, have, uh, how are you planning right now for your own future? Have you bought long-term care insurance or, or uh, what's your approach for now? So when, when I was um, researching the book, everybody often asked me that question. You know, what, what, what did you do about long-term care and insurance? Do you have children, by the way? Because some people say the, uh, the, the best uh, policy is a, is a daughter or daughter-in-law. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our mutual friend, Ann Tomlinson, always says your best, your, your best insurance policy That's is right. a daughter. So you uh, said you don't have children. So I don't have children. So it's just my wife and I. Um, and um, what I told people when I, when I was working on the book is let me finish the research and then I'll decide whether I'm going to buy long-term care insurance or not. And um, in the end, we decided we weren't going to buy. And the, the, the reason was really because my wife, um, because of, of, of her medical history, is probably going to be underwritten out. She probably couldn't buy insurance. Oh, um, too bad. And um, uh, I probably could, um, but um, to just get it for me probably wasn't financially sensible for our household. So in the end, I decided not to. But I'm always careful to tell people that just because we didn't doesn't mean you shouldn't. Um, so it may still be appropriate for 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 many people. Um, but as we've been discussing, you have to be sure that you have the financial resources so that you can continue to pay for this, uh, even if premiums go up. And by the way, um, an important sort of uh, additional piece of information here is not only will you have to pay premiums for long-term care as you age, but you will also have to pay increasingly higher premiums for Medicare as you age. Um, and you are going to have to pay increasing amounts of money for out-of-pocket medical costs as you age. So you add up all of that, and that's a lot of expense. Yeah. And you need you need to be sure that that um, down the road you can you can still with with all of that afford to pay for your long-term care insurance premium. The last thing you want to do is pay long-term care insurance premiums for 20 years, and then at age 80 stop paying the premiums because you can't afford them. Right. Because then then you just lost. 
you know, tens of thousands of dollars in, in, in premiums that, that they're going to do no good at all. Right, right. Okay. So what I'm hearing is the problem is that many uh, older adults don't want to think about this, either underestimate the likelihood they'll, they'll need supports, or even when they think of it, don't want to think about it because it's not fun to think about. And even if you do think about it, it's actually quite complicated to uh, financially plan ahead for your aging future because long-term care insurance is a complicated product to research and shop for. And then you have to make, you know, consider all these other possibilities, your out-of-pocket medical expenses and the other. So I can see how people would get overwhelmed. And so my last question is, do you have any favorite resources or books or things that you would suggest to the audience that can help a, um, a person, let's say a boomer, or somebody older work their way through this and maybe research these or, or make a plan so that they don't stay paralyzed. Yeah. So, I mean, I, of course, plug my own book, um, which is, uh, which is uh, uh, still out there. You can still pick that up. Um, the, the, you know, so it has the, the a financial planning part too. It does. There's a, there's a whole, there's a, there's a couple of chapters on long-term care insurance. That's um, so, so th- that's a, I mean, you know, the, there, and there are plenty of other books out there. It's not the only one. There, the, there's a dummy's guide. There, the, uh, there are some of those that are not bad. I, I think that um, it's, it's, it's not a bad idea to talk to um, uh, financial planners, financial advisors. Uh, the AARP website has some pretty good information about this. There are other websites I warn people off of that, um, that are, I, I call them, pay-to-play websites where they're going to give you advice um, that uh, is based on the advertising or the payments that they get from um, from um, providers or from insurance companies. And how can people find out which those are? Are you, are you going to tell us now or do we have to put it on a secret page for the podcast yeah, audience? I, I probably don't want to say it. Say okay. It, All right. But, but, but you, you know, if they if they sort of end in .com, I think you, 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 you need to at least be careful. Right. The main, I give, the main advice I give to people is plan. Uh, thinking about this at age 40, um, start to think about what your care needs are, what your care resources are likely to be, and begin to develop a real plan. Um, you know, the old, the old cliche, you know, denial isn't just a river in Egypt. And, and, and it's really true. The, 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 the biggest danger that all of us have um, when we think about uh, our retirement needs, is denial. Mm-hmm. It is this unwillingness to face the fact that there's a very high probability that we're going to need some level of help. And we, we need to prepare for that. And, and that may be savings. It may be buying insurance. Uh, it may be having daughters, you know, whatever works for you. But, but you, you've, you, you've, you've got a plan. You can't just ignore this. You know, we've been talking a little bit uh, about my my uh, experiences with consumer groups. The other thing that happens with consumer groups almost every time is someone will stand up, and it's almost always a guy, will stand up and say, well, I have a long-term care insurance plan. I'm just going to shoot myself. Mm. And I tell them, you know, that's really not a plan. And But, but that's the kind of level of thought that people – give to this. Um, and, and that's not going to work for you. And, you know, maybe, you know, people like me and groups that I've been involved in will sometime over the next 10 years have some success in, um, in creating a public program. Um, but don't count on it. 
this is ultimately going to be your responsibility. So, so I would say to people, do the financial planning. Think about those kind of community-based resources. Think about whether you want to start a group or work with people in an existing group um, where, where neighbors or members of faith communities can help one another. Um, think about this on all those levels. Um, but the, the worst thing you can do is pretend this isn't going to happen to you because it probably is. Right, right. Yes. And well, I'm going to add one more suggestion for people who, uh, who want to take a next step, which is that I highly recommend actually subscribing to your column because, uh, I find that reading Howard's column is, uh, you write it once a week, right? Pretty much, yeah. And it's a great way to get an update on what's happening with long-term care, long-term care insurance, the latest policy solution that some experts may have come up with and the pros and cons, relevant legislation that might be in Congress. And so I have found, Howard, that your column has just been a wonderful way for me to learn, to stay up to date. And um, it's in following along that that we might know when it's time to make a little push and encourage our representatives to implement something that we think is going to benefit ourselves or our older loved ones or other family caregivers. So, so my suggestion for the audience is uh, subscribe to Howard's column. I think it's great. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, you're, you're right about advocating. Um, you know, you can get very cynical about this, but in fact, Members of Congress will listen to their constituents. They will. If you, go, if you go up to a member of Congress or a state legislator at a, at a town meeting or something like that and said, let me tell you about my experience and how this system is failing me. And here are some ideas for how you can fix this. You, you, you'll get a better response than you think, than you, than you may think. Right. It's absolutely worth doing. Okay. Well, Howard, thank you again so much for, for coming. I'm delighted to finally have you on the show. And uh, yes, I hope we'll eventually be able to have you back to talk about some of the other topics that you're um, so knowledgeable about. Thank you. I'd love to do it anytime. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.